Today we're, we come to Matthew 13. We're going to start in verse 24. This is the second parable that Jesus gave on that same day, that same day from 13 verse 1. That same day is the day that the Pharisees said that he did his miracles by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And these parables, as we've seen, are parables of the kingdom, parables that teach the disciples about the, the kingdom program, and they teach about the time between the first and the second comings of Jesus the Messiah. It's the time between these two comings of the Messiah. This is the time that wasn't clearly revealed in the Old Testament, which is why it's called the mystery or the mysteries of the kingdom, because it's now being revealed about this time between the first coming of Messiah and the second coming. Now, last week, we studied verses 18 to 23, where Jesus interpreted for us the parable of the sower. And we saw that that in this time period, between the two comings, the word of God, the word of the kingdom would be preached. And we saw that as disciples, even though the kingdom wouldn't come immediately, we can still be part of the kingdom program by preaching the gospel and seeing people be saved and become sons of the kingdom, become citizens of the kingdom. And so even though the kingdom isn't established now or wouldn't be established at this time, we can still very much be part of it and participate in what God's doing in this time, this church age time between the two comings of Christ. Now we saw last time as we go out and make disciples, we're going to have various responses. We saw that some people are going to reject the message and that Satan would come and take it away. We saw that the fleshly desires for a trouble-free life would, would cause some people to fall away when the times got difficult. And we also saw that Others are not going to produce fruit because the cares of the present world are going to choke out the message that we preach. But praise God, some people will hear and understand and believe and be saved. And they will indeed bear fruit and become true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our parable today also deals with this age between the two comings of Christ. But but as we're going to see, the focus is going to be more on the end of this time, the end of this period. The focus is going to be on the return of Christ at the end of the age. And this is something that's really very important for disciples of Christ to understand. You see, we need to set our minds on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to constantly remember that this present world is passing away, and we need to know what God's plan is for the future. We need to know what's going to happen to the wicked and to the righteous when our Lord returns. Believers and unbelievers have separate destinies. And we need to constantly be reminded of this because we forget so easily. And by this parable, the Lord sets eternity before us and he helps us understand why the wicked and the righteous are both allowed to remain in this age, which again is the time that we are currently living in between the two comings of Christ. And so let's read our text starting in verse 24. And so it's Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. 
And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We're going to look at this. We're going to look at today at verses 24 to 30, as well as verses 36 to 43. And then next week we're going to come back and we're going to study the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And we're going to study this under really two very simple headings this morning. We're going to see the parable in verses 24 to 30, the story that Jesus told to the crowd. And we're just going to look at the story itself. We're going to follow the narrative there. And then secondly, we're going to look at the comparables in verses 36 to 43. And we're going to see the comparison to the reality to the kingdom of heaven. And so we've got the parable and then the comparables. And this is a text that, that really has a, a potential to radically change our lives and how we live. All scripture is profitable, but some texts have an, an ability to kind of grab hold of us and wake us from uh, our slumber and to the reality of God's perspective. And this is the kind of text that would have motivated maybe the apostle Paul when he said in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or this is a parable or a a text that that could kind of influence us, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so this is a text that can help us shake off the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches or the love of comfort or that dreadful desire to avoid hardship and trouble. It's a text that can motivate us to put off the things of the world and to live for Jesus Christ with all our hearts and minds and all our soul and all our strength. It's a text that can open before us eternity and remind us that the time is short and that we have one opportunity to live for Jesus Christ and then comes the end. And it begins with the parable in verses 24 to 30. So number one in your outline, let's look at this parable, verses 24 to 30. The parable makes a comparison between the kingdom of heaven and a man who sowed good seed. But it's not just the man, it's, it's really the whole story that's happening here. The kingdom program is going to somehow be comparable to the whole story about a man and his enemy and his servants and the plan for the harvest, which we see in the text before us. And as we look at these verses, we just want to understand the story right now. We just want to stick with the, the narrative that Jesus gave. Often in interpreting parables, we, we make mistakes when we jump too quickly or when we seek to jump too quickly to the spiritual meaning. First, we need to understand the parable on its natural level, and then we can see how it's like the kingdom of heaven. And so in verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And so again, we've got another farmer sowing, and and this time he's sowing good seed, and the seed has been sowed. Now, verse 25 introduces an enemy, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so this sower has men, as most landowners would. Typically, one's land would be managed by a steward who hired workers, who hired men to work the land for the landowner. And while these men were sleeping, and and I would note here that that's just normal behavior that, that men sleep in the evening, While they were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed weeds. Now, the word there translated weeds is a plant that's called darnel. I don't don't know if you guys would know darnel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Maybe it's darnel or whatever. If it's French, I'm not sure. But darnel, we're going to call it darnel. Darnel looks apparently very much like wheat, especially as it grows. And you almost can't tell the difference between these two plants until the heads of the wheat form and the heads of the darnel form, and then you can see that there's a difference. And they both grow at about the same rate, and so so it makes it even harder to tell that there's weeds in a field. Now, darnel is either, depending on the commentator, it's, it's either poisonous itself or it has a fungus that grows on it, and that fungus is poisonous. And if you mix the, 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 the wheat or the flour, if you, if you mill these and put them together, you're going to ruin the grain. And so however it looked, whether it's a fungus or whether it's poisonous itself, darnel was viewed as a poisonous weed. Now apparently enemies must have done this kind of secret nighttime sowing from time to time because even Roman law dealt with such a case. And so there's laws against doing this. There's laws against going into a neighbor's field and planting darnel, and there's penalties set for committing this crime. 
And so the enemy of the sower came and, and went and he sowed these, these weeds in the field. Verse 36. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And so when the good grain bore the heads, then the, then the weeds became evident. But until then, they looked the same. Now the master's men are, are concerned when they see the weeds among the wheat. And in verse 27, the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now these servants are literally slaves and the master of the house would own these people as was quite common in the ancient Near East. And there's enough weeds that these slaves wonder about the seed that the master supplied when they would have sowed for him. And so they ask, Master, did you not sow good seed? Now we already know that they did and we know what happened, but the servants, they're just, they're just figuring it out. And so they're, they're asking about the situation here. And, and this word here, when they call him master, it means Lord or master. And even sometimes sir, it's the word kurios. It's, it's the word that often in scripture refers to God or to the Lord Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but here it's just the proper way to address the master of the house. Now, in case you're wondering that word there, master of the house, that's a, a different word that just literally means master of the house. But this guy is the Lord. He's the master. He's the, the owner of the house. And it's his land that's being worked. Now, weeds do naturally grow in fields, but here there's so many weeds in this field that the men wonder about the seed. And the master knows what happened right away. And he says in verse 28, an enemy has done this. And so the slaves propose a solution. Verse 28 again, so the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? Should we go, master? Should we go and and pick the weeds? You know, this is again before pesticides were very common. And so there probably isn't really another way to do this. And so the slaves are wondering, they want to gather the weeds and they want to undo the work of their master's enemy. But look at what the master says in verse 29. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let, bro- let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the darnel and the wheat would be interconnected at the roots and pulling up the weeds would ruin some of the wheat. And so the master's going to allow both to grow together until harvest. And then at harvest time, there's going to be a separation. You see, there, there, again, there had to be a separation because darnel was poisonous. And if the grains of, of both plants were milled together, the flour would be tainted. Now, perhaps a bit surprising as we look at this is the order that the master gives. He says, first, get the weeds and then the wheat. You know, typically, I think the focus would be on get the wheat uh, get the good first and then take care of the weeds. Uh, that may, might be the expected order. But the master says, gather the weeds first. He wants them bound. He wants them burned. And that's a, uh, an intense word for burning, by the way. An, an intensive word for burning. It means to, it literally means to burn down. But we would probably say burn something up. The idea is to consume something, to, to fully consume something in flames. And so the master wants a complete burning of the weeds. They're the work of his enemy. 
They're useless to him, although you could use this for heating furnaces. You could use darnel chaff, I guess you would call it. You could use bundles of darnel to heat a furnace. But it's really useless to the master, and so he wants it burned. And then the wheat would be gathered into the master's barn. And that's the parable. And that's what the crowd heard that day. That's, that's really all they heard as far as this parable. Jesus sat in the boat and he taught them and he said this parable. And we could summarize it like this. It's often helpful to summarize a parable kind of in, on the natural level first. A farmer sowed good seed in his field. An enemy of his sowed weeds in the, the same field by night and the enemy's action was detected too late to do anything about it. And so a plan came to wait until the harvest. And at the harvest, the weeds would first be gathered and burned up, and then the wheat would be gathered into the master's barn. And I think that's a fair summary of our story. Kind of a a parallel passage. If you want to just flip back to Matthew chapter 3, look at verse 11 maybe. We don't know if the crowds that, that were there that day would have heard John the Baptist, but John the Baptist preaching in Matthew 3, 11 and 12, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when we come to a text like that, we recognize that the Lord Jesus wasn't a farmer, right? We recognize he didn't literally have a winnowing fork in his hand, and that what we're talking about here are people. We, that we get that when it says gather his wheat into his barn, that he's going to gather people and the chaff represents unsaved people the fire is hell the barn is heaven gathering his wheat into the barn is is really almost exactly the same as what we have in our passage at the end of verse 30 and so we kind of get that that there's some of these metaphors just kind of naturally make sense to us but even if we have this parallel passage which the crowds likely, well, you know, they, they might not have known, they might have known, they might not have known, but, but even with this parallel, par- parallel passage, I think we'd be at a, a loss to be 100% certain what this story actually meant. The disciples themselves, it, it, our text tells us they didn't understand, and so they come in verse 36 and they ask the Lord, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And so the crowds who only got parables would have been confused about what Jesus was talking about when he gave this message. And so once again, we need to note that the parables were a form of judgment on the crowds. See, they had rejected Jesus. They had rejected their Messiah. And the Lord had spoken through Moses about this very thing. And I want you to actually go ahead and turn turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're just thinking here about, about judgment coming on Israel for rejecting their Messiah. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Part of this judgment, of course, is the, the fact that the crowds are no longer going to have clear teaching from the Lord. 
But Deuteronomy 18, we'll read verse 15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so Moses is, is speaking here. He's the, the prophet. The, the, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like me, like Moses. And then if you jump, jump over to verse 18, it says, again, the Lord speaking now, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, again, like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so God promised that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a prophet like Moses. I'm going to put words in his mouth. He's going to speak those words. But there's this warning in verse 19 that, that there would be judgment for not heeding the Messiah's words, which Yahweh put in his mouth. And that's what it means when, when Yahweh says at the end of verse 19, I myself will require it of him. And part of that judgment has come upon Israel already now in the form of these parables. Part of that judgment is that the people who did not listen would no longer have the words of God. And they were cut off from understanding. You see, God judges people by cutting off access to His Word, by cutting off understanding His Word. And the opposite is also true. God's blessing is hearing and understanding and obeying His Word. And this is why I believe it's so important for us to be a, to be part of a church that does expository preaching. Expository preaching is where the text, the text of Scripture, which is the Word of God, is preached. And this allows God to speak through His Word. And so my job as an expository preacher is really to just get out of the way, to try to not be distracting, and to, to simply explain and illustrate and apply the meaning of each text. And that way, and as I've often said, that way you hear from God and not from me. And so each sermon is really to bring out of the text what God has communicated through the biblical authors. And that's, that's the opposite of maybe reading something into the text that's not there. Going to the text with my ideas, the, the purpose really is to bring out of the text what God says. But the goal is also then to take that meaning from the text and help you see how it applies to you. Really, first I apply it to me so that I am impacted by the text, and then I come seeking to apply it to you so that you can obey what God says in His Word. And so my job is to explain the text so that you can understand its meaning, and then to also encourage you and exhort you with the text, because the goal is that you would obey. The goal is that I would obey, that we would obey the Word of God, that we would obey God by obeying His Word. And so the goal is really obedience, and, and, and that would be, that would mean things like think the way that God thinks. So obedience in our thought life, or do what God says, either by avoiding a sin or by obeying what's commanded in the passage. You see, every text of scripture has something for us. And there's, there's kind of a, uh, a little acronym that sometimes I use that I think about when I, when I go through this. Every text has something for us, and the acronym or, 
Uh, I forget what you call it, but it's, it's specs. S-P-E-C-S. And so every text has a sin to be repented of, or a sin to be put off, or a sin to be avoided, or a promise maybe to cling to, to believe, to, to, to take hold of. An example to follow. Every text has maybe a commandment to obey or something to avoid and beware of. And so there's a sin, a promise, an example, a commandment, or just something to avoid. And that's the acronym SPECS. Now, God's blessing on our lives is that, that we can have his word and understand it and be transformed by it so that we believe it and know it and do it. That's God's blessing in our lives. God's blessing on us is if we have teachers and pastors and preachers who will labor to understand and obey and teach us his word. And that's why it's important that we should do everything that we can to support a local church that does all the things that our banner says. When you come in every Sunday morning, there's that banner there, and it it tells you the things that we think are important. Uh, Expository preaching is at the top of the list. Biblical counseling, discipleship, evangelism, missions, these are things that are God's blessing that happen through His Word. And so expository preaching is just to kind of broadly preach the Word of God to the people so that, so that it really impacts all of us. It's kind of like our general health. Biblical counseling is more specific. It's, it's really bringing people to the Bible. And so now the people come and, and have an issue or a problem and, and we go and we apply the scripture specifically, kind of like a, a surgeon would to that particular situation. And so expository preaching is we bring the Bible to the people and expository counseling, biblical counseling is we bring people to the Bible to address their specific problems. And these are things that are very, very important. And by being part of this church and serving the Lord here with us, we are blessing the community with God's Word. And and I know from your own lives that you're being impacted by the Word and putting it into practice because of our joint ministry here as we serve together as Grace Bible Fellowship. This is God's blessing in our lives. But conversely, on the other side of this, it grieves me to see people that, that are, that leave and that are trying to, to, you know, they're, they're, they're leaving what we're establishing here and going to churches that don't have expository preaching or don't have biblical counseling or discipleship or whatever. Or in some cases, not even going to church at all or, or listening online, which is not church. Now we all need to make a decision where we will serve and what church we will join. And we should join, and this is important, and, and it's not even about our church, but, but we should join whatever church, the best church that we possibly can. That's God's blessing in our lives. Now, no church on earth is perfect, but God's blessing is in allowing us to be part of a biblical church that submits to God's word and teaches it and challenges us to live it. But Jesus' generation was under judgment And they would now, from now on, they would only have these parables that they could not really understand. And I would be so bold as to say, and this is generally speaking, talking about North American Christianity here, our generation is under a similar judgment. And we can see God's judgment in the land in the lack of clear, doctrinal, practical, and biblical preaching that that comes from most pulpits in North America. 
This is God's judgment that he, he wants to judge a people. He sends them bad leaders. And in a sense, we put ourselves under that judgment when we choose to participate in and submit ourselves to ministries that aren't committed to understanding and applying God's word. And so that's kind of the parable, and we get, kind of get this picture of, of what's going on and the judgment that's happening there. The crowd wouldn't have understood, but now Jesus is going to explain it to his disciples. And this is number two in your outline. This is the comparables. So that we saw the parable, now we got the comparables, verses 36 to 43. And so look at verse 36. The disciples, the, Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him and saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And Matthew wants us to understand this parable, and therefore he provides the interpretation for us. And I believe that Matthew wants us to actually understand all of the parables, whether they're interpreted or not. And what, what's going to happen here as we understand one or two parables and, and kind of get a sense of these, they're going to help us understand and interpret the parables that Matthew doesn't explain. But each parable about the kingdom is going to help us understand the rest. And all of these parables make that same comparison. The kingdom of heaven is like... And so there, we're going to kind of learn these as we go. But the explanation of this parable comes in two parts. The first part, in verses 36 to 39, Jesus um, Jesus gives us, uh, he kind of tells us what each part represents. He kind of gives us each element in the parable and what's it, what it represents. Look at verse 37. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Now in this first part, Jesus kind of gives us each element of the parable. In the second part, he's going to focus on the end of the parable and what's going to happen at the end of the age. But it's interesting to note here that in this first part, that Jesus leaves out a number of things. And so let's go back and look at the parable. In verse 24, it's the Son of Man who sowed the good seed. But then in verse 25, it says, but while his enemy or while his men were sleeping, and there's no mention there of the, of the sleeping men when Jesus gives the interpretation. The men are also the reapers and, and the reapers are angels, but we know that angels don't sleep. And, and I think what it's important to recognize here as we interpret this parable that, that there's often details in a parable that are just simply there to carry the story along. And every detail of the parable doesn't have a corresponding aspect in reality. And so it's the whole picture, the, the parable is a, the whole parable is a picture of reality, but not every detail kind of fits reality. And that's really the difference between what we call an allegory and a parable. In an allegory, every part of the allegory maps to something in reality. But in a parable, there's, there's typically just one main point. There's typically one main point, although at times, like our parable last week, we kind of saw four main points. There were four soils, and each soil kind of meant something in reality. But but usually there's just one major point in each parable. 
And the whole story itself kind of corresponds with one thing in reality that Jesus is trying to teach. And so Jesus' interpretation here ignores the sleeping men. It ignores the, the enemy coming at night. It ignores the wheat um, bearing grain and that the two things were hard to distinguish. Jesus' interpretation doesn't mention, for example, what we see in verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? There's nothing mentioned about damage done or the potential damage to be done if God removed the wicked before the end of the age. There's nothing about verse 28 when the servant said to him, then do you want us to gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the weed along with them, let both grow together until the harvest. And so what we need to recognize is that Jesus doesn't seek to apply every detail in the parable to reality. And if we do so, as we kind of interpret other parables, if we do so, we're going we're gonna to misinterpret God's word. And in many cases, if we interpreted the parables that way, it'd lead to some really bad doctrine. For example, the evil one didn't plant wicked people in the world while God and the angels were sleeping, right? We, we know God doesn't sleep, and so we don't want to interpret those things into reality. So let's look at this a little bit closer and kind of go line by line here. Look at verse 38. The field is the world. So we know that the, the sower is the son of man. That's the Lord Jesus. Now the, the field is the world. Now some interpreters ignore this part of the verse and they, they speak about the mixed nature of the church and how there's believers and unbelievers in the church. They talk about the mixed nature of the church or, or how we need to wait until the end to know who's saved and, and who's not. And some even go so far to say and apply this parable then say something like this, that we shouldn't put unbelievers out of the church, lest in gathering the weeds we hurt the true believers. But this is not about the church. This is not a parable about church discipline. The field, Jesus says, is the world. And so we're talking about the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds, the darnel is the sons of the evil one. And so you are either a a child of God or a child of the devil. In this world, there's really only two classes of people, believers or unbelievers. And every one of us is born into this world as children of the devil. The enemy, the devil, that ancient serpent, tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, and Adam's sin plunged the whole human race into separation from God. And so we are born into this world with a disposition to sin. We are born bad. We are born enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, according to Titus 3.3. We are born, according to Ephesians 2.3, as children of wrath, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, Ephesians 2.2, captured by the devil to do his will, 2 Timothy 2.26. We are born into this world as slaves of sin, as sons of the devil, and we need the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, to set us free. In John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Then in verse 36, he says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
And so we are born into this world as sons of the evil one. And that's what this picture is picturing. The parable is picturing the wicked people who live in this age. And we need to be born again in order to become sons of the kingdom. We are like weeds in God's field, really fit only for the trash heap of the universe, hell, until salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 39 then. So we've kind of filling in the details of the parable. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. And so Jesus identified all of these components and then he goes on to make the main point of the parable. And what we'll see here is that the Lord really focused primarily only on the end of the parable. The focus is on the destinies of the two groups. And we'll, we'll often see this in parables that the focus is going to be on the last part of a parable. That's the part that often is meant to be interpreted and noticed because really, if you think about it, it makes sense because the whole story kind of carries along till that last point. And once Jesus has kind of set up everything that he wants to say, what's left at the end is often the main thing that he wants us to understand. And so interpreters call that sometimes the principle of of end stress or something like that. That's what I call it anyways. The the principle of kind of the, the focus is on the end of the parable. And that's how Jesus interprets his parable here. It all comes together to make the final point. And the final point involves really the end result for the, the weeds. And again, the weeds represent the sons of the devil, the sons of the evil one, they, they represent unbelievers or unsaved people. And it also involves the wheat, believers, saved people who are called sons of the kingdom. And so there's going to be a separation here at the end of the age. At the end of this time, when Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be a separation and there's going to be two different destinies. Look at verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Three verses here to describe what happens to the wicked. And just like the weeds were gathered and first and then burned up, so will the wicked be gathered first at the end of the age. And note, note at the beginning of verse 43, note that word, then. And so first comes the gathering of the wicked, and then we're going to see what happens with the righteous. Now I should say somewhere here, and we're going to do it right now, that the expectation of the kingdom was righteousness. When the Messiah came, he was going to speak Yahweh's words like a prophet, almost like Moses, but even to a greater extent. And, and he would come and he would reign in righteousness as the king. This is what we expect when we read the Old Testament of what the Messiah is going to do. And so we're expecting the Messiah to bring in everlasting righteousness. And to kind of see that, for example, I want you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's showing that there's going to be something a little different, at least in the time being, there's going to be something different during this age that he's speaking about between his two comings. 
Because when the Messiah came, what was expected was righteousness. What was expected was repentance. What was expected was the judgment of the wicked. And what Jesus is saying is that this is going to happen later at the end of this age. And so Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, we often read this around Christmas time. For unto us, or for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so the expectation was that when the Messiah came, he would, he would carry the government. He would, he would lead the government. It would be on his shoulders and he would bring in peace. And he would reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, not from heaven, but he would reign on earth like we saw last week in Daniel chapter 2. And he would reign in righteousness from then and into eternity forever. Now again, what Jesus is revealing here is that that this bringing in of everlasting righteousness is not going to happen yet. And it's not going to happen yet because Israel did not turn, they did not repent, they did not pursue righteousness. Now one day they will and all of this will happen and all of this will be fulfilled and at that time the kingdom is going to be established in righteousness but until then the world is going to have sons of the evil one in this age. And so until then, we're going to continue to have evil in the world. But until then, also, there will be true believers. Now turn to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll see another kind of parallel passage to that of our parable. Matthew 25, verse 31 When Jesus returns at the end of the age, he's going to return on the clouds of heaven and he's going to return with his angels, just like we see in our parable. So starting in Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the angels will, will gather the nations at this time. And those blessed by the father are going to inherit the kingdom. But if we jump down to verse 41, the unsaved are there, and he's going to say then in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And again, verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so this text, and we'll look at it when we get to Matthew 25, but it it deals with the same time as our text. Jesus is going to return, his angels are going to gather all the nations, and then there's going to be this separation, the righteous from the unrighteous. 
And the righteous are going to inherit the kingdom. They're going to reign with Christ for a thousand years, and then they're going to reign forever with him in the eternal state. And the unrighteous are going to go away into eternal punishment. And so then let's go back to our text here, Matthew 13. Look at verse 41. It says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now notice that they are His angels. The Son of Man has angels. And and so over and over again, we see the divinity of our Lord. Only God has angels. And so these are His angels. Jesus is claiming to have authority over the angels. And, and the angels are going to gather the people. The unsaved are, are gathered here and they are, they are gathered, it says, out of his kingdom. Now, the way I understand this, I, I believe the, the right way to understand this is that when the king comes, then the kingdom is established and he will then sit on his glorious throne, the throne of David. And the first act of business on that throne is going to be to judge the nations, first to gather them for judgment. And then to judge them. And all causes of sin and all lawbreakers are going to be gathered out of the kingdom. They're going to be forcibly removed out of the the newly established kingdom. And at that point, the righteous believers that are alive at that time are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And of course, those who have already died are going to come with the Lord as well. And they're going to reign with Christ forever. But note who is gathered out according to this text here, according to verse 41. Now, first of all, note that word, all. It's all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. They're going to be gathered out. And from then on, there's only going to be righteousness allowed in the world. Only righteous people, only, I think, true believers are going to enter the kingdom of heaven at that time. But notice, all causes of sin, all lawbreakers are going to be gathered out of the kingdom. Now, that first word there translated in the ESV, causes of sin. That's the Greek word scandalon, and it literally meant a trap. And it refers to something or someone that, that leads one to, to kind of get off the proper path. And that proper path is either the proper moral path or it's the proper path of belief. And so it's something that, that leads one astray, off the proper path. Now, it's most often used in a verb form. This is the noun form, but it's most often used in a verb form, which means to cause a downfall or to cause to sin or to offend or to be offended. Some translations translate this as a stumbling block. And again, here's, here's someone who tempts to sin, someone who entices to apostasy, to going astray, or somebody who promotes false beliefs. And all of these kinds of people are going to be gathered out of the kingdom. Now, we've seen this word, at least we've seen the verb form of this word a few times already in Matthew. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. I want to, I want to show you this word. It's an important word, I think, for us to understand. Matthew 5, look at verse 29. If your right hand, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And of course, that word there is translated causes to sin. Causes you to sin. Again, in verse 29 and verse 30. Now go and look at Matthew, uh, look at 11 and verse 6. Jesus says there, uses that word in Matthew 11, 6, and he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So there it's used more in the sense of, of offended. Uh, verse, Matthew 13, verse 21, we just saw that word last week. Matthew 13, 21, talking about the, the seed that was planted on the shallow soil. Uh, has no root in itself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the, of the word, immediately he falls away. And so the idea there of, of this one doesn't want to face tribulation, doesn't want to face persecution, and so leaves the proper path of enduring and, and, and goes away from the Lord. And so a stumbling block is someone or something that leads one into sin. Someone or something that leads one into sin. Someone or something that leads one astray, that leads one from the path of obedience to the Lord. But sometimes I've, I've heard this word used almost exactly backwards, and I want to explain it to you a little bit here. For example, I've, I've heard on, on baptism, I've heard people say that they don't want to get immersed, they don't want to be baptized because they don't want to be a stumbling block to others. But that's exactly backwards of what this word means. A cause to sin is anything that would cause disobedience. You see, obedience to the word of God is never a stumbling block in scripture. It's never a stumbling block. Even if it does offend other people, it's never a stumbling block to obey. In fact, if people are offended by your obedience or they would, they would influence you away from obedience to Christ, then actually they are a stumbling block to you because they are leading you to sin. They are leading you to disobey the Lord. Now, one day our text says that all those who would cause following Jesus to be difficult for others or all those who would counsel disobedience One day they will all be gathered out of the kingdom. Now the text also says there, all lawbreakers, so all those who would lead astray are going to be cast into hell. Also all lawbreakers. And literally it's all doers of lawlessness. All those who continually practice lawlessness. Now we've also seen this word before in a very important text. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so these people say Jesus is Lord. And in fact, they say it emphatically. They say, Lord, Lord. 
but they don't do what he says. And they built their house on the sand. And when judgment comes, their whole religious house is going to fall. And we see that in the very next verses. Look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now the key characteristic here of these people is lawlessness. Again in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so there it's workers of lawlessness. In our text, it's doers of lawlessness. And what's, what the, the lawlessness is here is that they're not living according to the new covenant law that Jesus laid down in the Sermon on the Mount. They're not living the life that Jesus called his followers to live. They're not, in verse 21, doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, true believers don't do God's will in order to be saved. They don't do God's will in order to be saved, but they do the will of God because they are saved. And so in our text, our Lord uses these two words to picture the unsaved person. And this unsaved person is on their way to hell, and he calls them lawbreakers and causes to sin. And look at where they end up, and and this is really very sobering, verse 42, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's a frightful picture. One of the the strongest in all of scripture on the torments of hell, throw them, cast them into literally the furnace of fire. And they are, you know, if we kind of compare it to the weeds, they are, they are worthless. They're the work of my enemy, God says. They are gathered and they are cast into hell. They are useless to me. They aren't glorifying me, which is what everything is about. And so we're going to cast them into the fiery furnace where they will be no more. And so the wicked, these people, are gathered and cast into hell. And in that place, in the fire of hell, that is where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's literally there, in that place it's speaking of, there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's actually more literally the weeping and gnashing of teeth, which points to the, one, one commentary said, or one, one dictionary said, it points to the unique and extreme character of the weeping and the gnashing. Now we saw this weeping and gnashing of teeth already in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, and I think it appears four times in Matthew or five and one time in Luke, this phrase. It's always together, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, it it showed the deep remorse of, of those who were not allowed to enter into the kingdom. And so, my friends, I urge you not to end up in that place and flee from the wrath to come. If you aren't a believer in Jesus Christ, if you haven't come to him, then, then you need to flee to Christ who alone can save you from this place. Flee to Christ and flee the sin that would keep you from Christ. It's not something to be toyed with. It's not something to be played with. It is something to be fled from and run from because this is a terrible place and I don't want anyone to end up in that place. 
And if that's not enough to kind of convince you, then we need to go and look at the final verse. Look at the the promise of eternal life in verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And this is the other side of the equation then. This is the other side. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now in Matthew chapter 17, we're going to see Jesus transfigured. And his face is going to shine like the sun, our text is going to say there. And his clothes are going to be white as light. And our text tells us that we also are going to shine like him on that day. And it's a picture of our glorification. When we're going to be made like Christ, even our eternal, our, our, our external bodies are going to be made like his. And there's going to be this, this heavenly glow on our physical forms. We're going to shine like him. And so, brothers and sisters, there's a, a day coming when, when we're going to enjoy the eternal kingdom. Revelation 22, verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. And this is the point that I want to kind of make here. This, this day is coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Jesus is going to return, and this reality is going to happen. This, there's going to be this separation, and we're going to go to one place or the other, one destiny or the other. Again, Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And this is the reality that we need to set our minds on. We are soon going to stand with the glorified, risen Lord Jesus, and we're going to be rewarded for our lives in this age. And on that day, we're going to be glad of every sacrifice we made. We're going to be glad of every service for our Lord. We're going to be glad of every way that we ministered to our blessed Lord Jesus, every way that we served Him. We're going to be glad for every reproach that we bore, for every persecution that we suffered, that every trial that we rose above, every insult that we received, and every enemy that we loved for Jesus' sake, we are going to be glad for our service and we're going to rejoice forever in our work and in our Lord. And so right now, we live in the midst of a wicked world. And all around us, that's that's what we see. We just see the wickedness and the evil and we see the, the temptations to sin and the causes to sin and we see lawlessness abounding. Right now we live in the mixed, midst of the wicked, but, but don't let them influence you. Don't be sucked up into or sucked into living like the world. 1 Peter 1.13 says to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the disciples needed to know this in order to motivate them for their mission in this sinful world. And we need to know these realities. We need to know the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. We need to know the difference between the temporal and the eternal. We need to know the difference between eternal blessedness and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I began this morning by saying that This is a text that could help us to shake off the cares of the world, to shake off the deceitfulness of riches, the love of comfort, and motivate us to live to the glory of God by serving Christ and loving Him and being devoted to Him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. You see, again, we have one opportunity, we have one life to live for the Lord, one opportunity to serve Him, and then we're going to enter into eternity forever. 
This parable teaches that the sons of the kingdom, the sons of the Lord, and the sons of the wicked one are going to be together until the end of the age. But at the end of the age, Christ is going to return and he's going to make this separation. And it's going to be either eternal blessedness or eternal curse. Let's close with the words that our Lord gave at the end of verse 43. He says, the righteous, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we know that we have ears, but we recognize that we often get distracted with the things of the world and we live our lives for temporal things and we don't serve you the way that we should. We pray, Father, that you would let this text impact us the way that it should Set eternity before us, Father, in a new way, we pray today. Help us to live even more for you. Even in just the day-to-day things, help us to live our lives as an act of worship to you every moment. Even, even moments when we rightfully need rest, Father, we pray that we would do all for you and for your glory. Father, we pray that you would help us and use us as a means of delivering people from this wretched end. We pray that you would save people through us and that you would help us to evangelize and reach the world with the gospel. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to it to you and to look forward to our reward, again, to set our minds on eternity. We pray that we would do this for your glory. Amen.